chip. And the famous line was, practice, practice, practice. You're talking about practice here, you know. And, and uh, the point is well made that they were trying to make something bigger out of it than it was. And I'm not taking away the fact that we need to practice. But there was a difference between practice and the actual championship that was away. Championship would be very serious. I say that because I feel like that's where we are in the study of Kings. Not that we were practicing and coming to the championship here, but just last week we talked about Jeconiah's curse. And that's something that, I don't know, I just enjoyed looking at and trying to solve that, put that together. Uh, we saw various other things that we studied on the side. You remember when we talked about Isaiah chapter 7? And we hear that every Christmas um, you know, about the virgin will give birth to a son. Well, it was so exciting when we were in Kings and we saw King Ahaz. He was the king who God said, tell me a sign and I'll do it. And of course, we know the story there. But when we come to this end of chapter 24, it is going to get serious because it's all but over. Zedekiah is not only the last king before they go into Babylonian captivity, but we only have a few verses in chapter 24 until we hit chapter 25. Chapter 25 is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. One of the things that we are going to see, and we've said it over and over, but we're going to see it again. It, it wasn't just written in the prophets who were talking to the kings, the promise of God <laughs> to destroy them if they would fall away from him started back in the book of Exodus and then Deuteronomy. And then we see all of the prophets over and over. And it's, it's redundant, but it's redundant for a reason. And we're going to see that tonight in the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah over and over and over says it to Zedekiah and it still made no difference and by this time we're going to see that God's mind has been made up he's going to bring destruction going to bring the Babylonians they're going to take uh, Judah into captivity there's no changing it God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted we learn about God's sovereignty we're also going to see a little bit about the interplay of false prophets. The interplay of false prophets with the true prophet, Jeremiah. So there's a lot in this section here, even though we're not going to really cover a whole lot of verses in 2 Kings 24. We'll, we'll begin in verse 17, and then we'll end up in chapter 25, verse 2. And then I figure we have about two more two more sessions in the book, unless somehow or other I can figure out how to stretch it out. I, I really am enjoying it. But before we go any further, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you were very serious in all of your admonitions and prophecies to Judah and Israel for that matter. But Father, this is it. This is not this, the last straw that broke the camel's back. This is the camel whose back is broken. Father, we, we know that you are a God of your word and you are very gracious, Lord, and yet you are a God who is holy and righteous. And it would be wrong to say that you are just a God of love when indeed you are a holy God and a righteous God and these righteous standards must be met by man or else he needs to come to Christ. And that's exactly where this all points. Teach us this evening, Father, as we have our faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me begin with the review. I'm going to review Jeconiah's curse. Um, and I understand that such things 
can get a little technical. They can get a little hard to understand. I, I mean, I feel like um, every time I look at it, I get a little better understanding of it. Uh, it, it still is a difficulty because there are several uh, interpretations, but let's just go over it. Well, we were talking about Jeconiah, who was also Jehoiachin, who was also Kaniah. Okay, different names, but the same guy. And he was cursed in the book of Jeremiah, saying, You will be childless. None of your offspring will sit on the throne. And by the way, he wasn't childless, but that was meant metaphorically, meaning as if you had no children, because not one of them will sit on the throne. In verse 24 of Jeremiah 22, it says, You are my signet ring, who I now remove. That authoritative ring where you put your stamp and identify who you are and your authorship. God had that, and that's who these kings are. And he said, Jeconiah, I'm removing you. Well, we know as we go through this that Nebuchadnezzar came and he took Jeconiah and his mother and the officials and several others, took them into captivity. That was the second deportation. We're about to talk about the third. Jeconiah died in captivity. And let me say that again. Jeconiah died in captivity. That's going to come up in today's lesson. There was the idea later on in the book of Haggai of Zerubbabel. He was the grandson of Jeconiah, and it says that he was a signet ring. Now, one of the things that people were saying was, well, maybe Zerubbabel um, it reversed the curse. He did not. We have a royal line, but Zerubbabel was never a king. There was no descendant from Jeconiah that took the throne. We then move to the New Testament because Matthew's genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ mentions Jeconiah. So to read it, you would see the beginning, you would see David, and then you would see Jeconiah, and then you would see Christ. But I thought none of his offspring would sit on the throne. No, because we believe that Matthew was Joseph's line, and Joseph was not the biological father. Now, Joseph did become the legal father, and therefore Jesus had the right to be the legal heir of the throne, but just not a descendant, a blood descendant. We go to the book of Luke, and in the book of Luke, we have another genealogy. It's a little different. Is that a contradiction? No, we believe that's Mary's genealogy, and that's the bloodline. There has to be a bloodline. And of course, she was his mother. She was the virgin that was spoken of in Isaiah chapter 7. And of course, so here's the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfills this, this conundrum. How can he sit on the throne if he's going to be a descendant of Jeconiah? Well, he wasn't a descendant of Jeconiah, but legally he had the right to sit on the throne. And he did have the bloodline to David. Mary had a bloodline to David through Nathan, not Solomon. And so in conclusion, this is what we see. Though there are differing interpretations, the Matthew-Joseph legal line and the Luke-Mary bloodline make the case that only Jesus could have answered Jeconiah's conundrum. Only Jesus could fulfill Mary's bloodline to David with no human father, while at the same time be legal heir to the throne of David through Joseph bypassing Jeconiah's curse. Well, I'm not saying that's practice, but I am saying it, it becomes very serious from this point on. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 24, beginning in verse 17.
All right, so 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 17. I am going to go back to the last two verses just to put this together. Verse 15, 24, 15 of 2 Kings. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile to Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, just as God has been prophesying. And he led Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, Keniah, all one guy, into exile to Babylon. And the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land, he led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these, the king of Babylon, brought into exile to Babylon. So this is the second deportation, and Jeconiah is gone from Jerusalem. Who now is going to be the king? Zedekiah. Who was he? Well, we pick it up in verse uh, 17. It says, Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, that's Jeconiah's uncle, Mataniah king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So what we have here is Mataniah or Zedekiah, as I will refer to him from now on, he was the son of Josiah. But Jeconiah was the son of Jehoiakim, who was the son of Josiah. So he was the grandson of Josiah. So Zedekiah really was his uncle. Okay? So here's kind of the, the uh, how it plays out. And by the way, I got this chart from, from the book of Jeremiah. I uh, went back into my notes and looked at that. So we have the last five kings. We have Josiah, 31 years, and that was so great. Then we had Jehoahaz, three months, not so great. Then we had Jehoiakim, 11 years, not so great. Then we had Jehoiachin, not so great. And now we have Zedekiah, not so great. So Josiah was the last king to be a good, good king. And the rest of them were not good kings, but they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse 18, if you would. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Why did he only reign 11 years? Because at the end of 11 years, they went into Babylonian captivity. This is for all the marbles here. It says, and his mother's name was Hamudal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. What is interesting about this, we did see her mentioned before. We saw her mentioned in one of the other sons of Josiah. And that would have been Jehoahaz. So we see her. Um, Libna uh, had a very shaky uh, background and history. Uh, at one time, they fought against Judah. Well, what's the significance? Well, many think that it was a marriage made in political heaven. It was made to keep alliances and those kinds of things. Well, at least two sons came from her, Jehoahaz and Zedekiah. Well, it says here then that notice that she was the daughter of Jeremiah, not our Jeremiah, not the Jeremiah of the book of Jeremiah, uh, because notice it says uh, Jeremiah of Libna, whereas our Jeremiah comes from Anathoth. He was the one who became and is the prophet at this time. Now, look at verse 19. And we're going to slow down here after this. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. So each of the kings after Josiah did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to what their fathers had done. And right away, that suggests idolatry, not following the Lord. 
not trusting the Lord, seeking these other gods for God's for their God's protection and their will. Again, how silly. There are no other gods. There are no other gods. And so they were trusting in nothing rather than the true and living God who had called Israel to be his people. So we see then that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's all it's going to say in 2 Kings. We get a little bit more in 2 Chronicles, and then we get a lot more in the book of Jeremiah. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 14. By the way, here's a picture of uh, Zedekiah. Uh, you could have gotten his picture on one of the coins. Anyway, uh, kind of looks like an elf there. I'm not really sure. You know, I, it, you, you really wonder sometimes about the imagination of the author, and that's really what it comes down to. This is not what he looked like. This is just um, the imagination, but this is Zedekiah. All right, as we're looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 14, it says, Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Now, this is talking about during the reign of Zedekiah. And I believe Zedekiah was a part of this, and I also believe that he was guilty of it because he allowed it to go on in the kingdom. He was the king over God's people. And this is what we find out about them, uh, about him, that they're following the abominations of the nations. Now, I think first and foremost, that's idolatry. But I think you could lump on a whole host of other sins, things that were abomination of the Lord. Absolutely not. And yet that's what they were doing. And the, the priests and the officials and the people, they all followed suit. Now, you remember when Josiah was king? They didn't all follow suit because Josiah himself was faithful to the Lord. He read the word to everyone. And in his kingdom, that was the rule that they had to follow the Lord. Not so with the last king of Judah. And then we read in verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now, that's a good thing. His compassion is a good thing, but this is not meant in a good context. The, the deal is that God kept sending his prophets over and over and over to them all, but they would not have any of it. Now, why did God do that when they were disobeying him? Because he's a God who has compassion. That compassion is about 99.9% used up. All right, so the idea here then is this is not good either. They didn't heed the prophets. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who was the king, uh, the prophet during the king Josiah, uh, and then all the rest of them down to Zedekiah. And we're going to see him talk to Zedekiah over and over and over. All right. I'd like to now go to, I'd like to go to Jeremiah now. Let's talk a little bit about Zedekiah from the book of Jeremiah. And we could really spend the, the rest of tonight in that. Um, quite a bit was said about Zedekiah. And we still have a lot to say about Zedekiah. It's not the end yet. Well, a couple of things that we can find out about Zedekiah, how he did evil in the sight of the Lord, besides idolatry, besides the abominations, there are a couple of them. Number one, even though Zedekiah inquired of the Lord, he didn't listen. Zedekiah 
turned to false prophets because he didn't like what Jeremiah told him. There was a showdown between prophets, between Jeremiah and Hananiah. And then finally, what do you do? They, they persecuted Jeremiah. In fact, at one point, they were even going to kill him. So this is some of his uh, evil that he did for the Lord. So let's look at the first one. Zedekiah inquires of the Lord. Well, that's a good thing. Well, yes, only if one obeys and listens to the word of the Lord after inquiring. And I'm going to turn to a couple of passages. You can turn there with me if you're fast. If not, I'll just read it. But in Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 2, he says to Jeremiah, Please inquire of the Lord on our behalf, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts so that the enemy will withdraw from us. Well, can I say it? Why in the world does he not know what's happening? When it's been said over and over and over, and it's almost as if he really is insincere. Oh, the Lord is wonderful and he does wonderful acts. Maybe if you talk to him, uh, things will work out. Wow, haven't you been paying attention? The Lord responds. And we'll look at his response throughout this lesson tonight. It says, and then Jeremiah said to them, you shall say to Zedekiah as follows. And let's read on. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 4, Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall and I will gather them into the center of the city. He's inquiring of the Lord, what's going to happen? And the Lord tells him what's going to happen. So the weapons that the uh, that, that Judah has, they're, they're going to be replaced. But the weapons that Babylonians have, they're going to stay in their hands. And they're already besieging. They're already besieging. <laughs> they're knocking at the wall. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about that and how that all plays out. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but it's, it's the idea... Here they come, here they are. So this inquiry wasn't a good inquiry, and he was told what the Lord really thinks. Well, since Zedekiah didn't like that, and he didn't want to hear that, he turns to false prophets. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, and I want to look at verse 16. And here's Jeremiah Preaching to the king and to Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And I just want to stop there. Wow, do you want to have a definition of false prophets and false teachers? There it is. It's futile. It has nothing to do with truth or with what's going to happen. And it's a figment of their own imagination. When we hear these prophecies of these would-be prophets today, it's some kind of feeling that they have. And I don't mean, I don't mean a bona fide feeling. I mean a whim. Well... Maybe this is what the Lord is saying. And they go out and they tell people in our day, even those who proclaim to be Christians, and what they're saying is futile. And that, by the way, is one of the nicest things that's said about false prophets here in Jeremiah. It's futile. It goes way beyond that. But it's their own imagination and not from the mouth of the Lord. We'll talk more about this and look at some descriptions of false prophets. But he turns to 
the false prophet, Zedekiah. And then it says, they keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. So here's Jeremiah and every other prophet of God. Doom is coming. It'll be fine. Peace, peace. It's what he wanted to hear. And so he started to listen to them. And it's interesting there at the very end, and everyone who walks in stubbornness of his own heart, calamity will not come upon you. Wow, that's a reversal of the truth of the Bible, isn't it? Well, it comes down to this guy, Hananiah, who is a false prophet, and he's specifically saying these things, and Jeremiah comes in and refutes him, and then they have a showdown. So turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 28. Jeremiah chapter 28, it begins in verse 1. Now in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, let's jump down to verse 3, within two years, and he's speaking for the Lord, he's a prophet now, within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house. You remember Nebuchadnezzar took them? Remember they're going to they're gonna play out in the time of Daniel? It says, all the vessels are going to come back, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And watch this. I am also, now he's speaking for the Lord. This is supposedly the Lord speaking through the mouth of Hananiah. I also am going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So all this time, he's been saying, you're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be going to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And here comes this guy and says, oh, no, that's not true. All's going to be returned, and Jeconiah is going to be the king. Well, we read earlier in our review that he died in Babylon. He did not come back. That, this is a false prophecy. And then I'd like you to drop down to verse 8 and 9. And here's Jeremiah's response. Verse 8, 28, 8. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. And of course, the logical connection there is, and you are one who is disobeying the Lord, and now you, are, you too are going to have calamity. And then here's, here's the showdown. Here's what it is. He says, the prophet who prophesies of peace, you, Hananiah, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. He's saying, okay, let's see whose word comes to fruition. You say in two years, it's all going to be returned. And if that happens, then you're the true prophet. We're going to find out that Jeremiah has his own prophecy about Hananiah. And they're not going to have to wait two years. This is the showdown. Look at verses 14 through 17. And it's going to come to a climax as well. So verse 14 of chapter 28. After Hananiah spewed his ignorance... The Lord spoke to Jeremiah, and this is what he said. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. 
and I have also given him the beasts of the field. So total domination. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year, not two years, this year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah, the prophet, died in the same year in the seventh month. Which prophet is the prophet of God? Jeremiah. Well, what about the other prophet? He is no more. And yet, and yet, they still do not submit to him or what he has to say. So what do they do? Well, they do what all of these kings have done. When they don't like what they hear, they go after and shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger from the message, they, but they did. And we see Jeremiah persecuted numerous times in the book of Jeremiah. By the way, you know, I know that uh, he's, he's known as the weeping prophet, and he is. He wept in sorrow about what was about to happen to Judah. He was not a crybaby. In fact, this persecution that we see, we're going to just take a quick look at, never faced him a bit. He always kept saying the truth, the prophecy of God, regardless even if it would have cost him his life. Well, a couple of these. First of all, uh, in Jeremiah 32, verses 2 and 3. It says, now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. Here we go. Knock, knock, knock. And, Jer the, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. Because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up. <laughs> That's a great play on words, isn't it? Saying, why do you prophesy, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. Well, we see that. And then we also see that uh, he was apprehended again and thrown in a guardhouse. That's in Jeremiah chapter 37. And then later on in Jeremiah chapter 38, they tried to kill him. Now, I will admit, as you go through it, Zedekiah wasn't always behind all of it. But he didn't have the backbone to stop this either. But in Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 4 through 6, it says, Then the officials said to the king, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in the city. <laughs> yeah, because... Jeremiah, under the prophecy of God, was saying, you really only have one option. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't fight him. This is bigger than you. This is bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. My hand is in this. But they're fighting him. They're rebelling him. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take that kindly. Behold, uh, or let, let me go back. Um, by speaking such words to them, for this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. Oh, my word, the exact opposite. So King Zedekiah said, behold, he is in your hands, for the king could do nothing against you. What? The king can do nothing? The king? Practice? Practice? Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchijah the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. And of course, uh, they were going to allow him to just die in there. He, he then eventually um, has someone who finds out that he's in there, and they help him escape. 
But this just shows us the, how evil Zedekiah was. Not just idolatry, not just the abomination of other nations, but literally persecuting these prophets who were telling him God's will. Well, at this point, let's go to verse 20 back in 2 Kings. Chapter 24, verse 20. Because we're going to see Zedekiah is promised captivity. He has been promised kept in, in being, being put into captivity. And I'm going to take a little time to look at it. I'm going to read the same outcome over and over. Well, isn't that redundant? Yes, but that's the point. The point is, Jeremiah, along with all the other prophets, to all the other kings, Jeremiah says it over and over and over. Promised captivity to you, Zedekiah. All right, 2 Kings 24, verse 20. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And then the last phrase is, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So I'm going to deal with those phrases separately, but can you imagine? I mean, the anger of the Lord was against him. He's going to hear from Jeremiah, but it doesn't matter. He's still going to go against the will of the Lord. He's going to rebel against king of Babylon. What we find out is, you don't have to turn there, but when we were looking at 2 Chronicles 36, we read verse 14, and we read verse 15, and it talked about the abominations of the nations, and he didn't heed the, he did not heed the words of the prophets. And that's exactly what it says here in 2 Chronicles. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. No remedy. That's what they did. And so the first part talks about the anger of the Lord. Now, remember, Manasseh was the straw, last straw that broke the camel's back, but Zedekiah is the one who takes the camel down, if you please. And we see because he, in his evil ways, was not submitting to God's word through the prophets. So because of his sin, it provoked the anger of the Lord. We're no longer 99.9. We are at 100%. Now, we're not going to get into that so much tonight. But some of this is just incredible. Now, what did Jeremiah say to him throughout his reign? Jeremiah, the prophet to these five kings. Well, in chapter 21, Jeremiah said that God's face is set against you. God's face is set against you. And I'll just read it. Jeremiah 21, 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, and we read this part before, but we'll, we'll read down more. Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands, with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall, and I will gather them into the center of this city. I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they will die of great pestilence. I think they provoked the anger of the Lord. Then afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people, even those who survive in this city, from the pestilence, the sword, and the famine 
into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Many will die. Many will fight and die. Many will die of pestilence and famine and disease. Whoever is surviving, you're going. And into the hand of their foes and into the hand of those who seek their lives, he will strike them down with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them nor have pity nor compassion. And it's at this point, an unbeliever might get a hold of this verse and just think of God as a totally vengeful God. He has no clue how many times God has been gracious and forgiven them. And then you remember what we learned last week? It's in this context that the new covenant is said. He is going to restore his people not only back to the land of Israel from captivity, but in the future, in the millennial kingdom, he will bring them in and make them his people again. So compassion is there. But why would he not be a God of wrath and bring it to fruition? You think he was just saying it? You know, we, you hear about, you know, maybe parents that keep telling their kids, well, you're going to be in trouble if you, if you do this. And then they just keep saying that. Well, pretty soon, kids are smart. And they're going to they're gonna think, well, I'm never going to get spanked or I'm never going to get dealt with here. Well, God is not a, a God like that. What he promises and what he warns will come to fruition. And then Jeremiah even prophesies a name, the name Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling Zedekiah the guy's name who's coming in. And this is found in Jeremiah 25. Uh, verses 2 through 9, uh, I, I'm not going to uh, read all of that, but he speaks to the inhabitants there, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to take them into captivity, and he's so named. And then in chapter 34, you know, Zedekiah, inquire of the Lord. I want to know. Inquire of the Lord. <laughs> well, okay, I told you all these other things. Well, now I'm going to tell you that you're going to die, and you're going to die in Babylon. And it's not, a pretty, it's not a pretty situation that we're, we're going to take a look at that. But in chapter 34 of Jeremiah, chapter 34, verse 2, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, there it is, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. You will not escape from his hand, for you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand, and you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye. Actually might be a little bit of play on words there. We'll figure that out later. And he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you will not die by the sword. You're not going to die in this conflict. You will die in peace, time of peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you, and they will lament for you. Alas, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. He will die in captivity. And then in chapter 37, Chapter 38, 39, that's it. That, that's, that's captivity in Jeremiah. Chapter 37, after all this, Zedekiah inquires of the Lord again. And he wants to, he wants to know what's going to happen. And this is what is said. The Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city. They will capture it and they will burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go. For even if you had defeated the entire army of the Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. It doesn't matter if you defeat them and kill almost all of them, and the rest of them are wounded, they will defeat you because the hand of the Lord is against Israel 
at this time. And what do we see happen? What we see happen is Zedekiah rebels. He rebels. And we see this in that last phrase of verse 20. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Uh, you know, the, the only way that I can explain that is there was absolutely no faith, no spiritual eyesight there. He didn't believe anything that the Lord said. And so this is exactly what happens. So I have a number of quotes as they, um, we, we have some verses to back this up, but most of this is history. So one, one quote is in 588 and, and 586 is the Babylonian captivity, the final one. In 588, a prize also called Hafra, the grandson of Nico, became Pharaoh over Egypt. He appears to have influenced Zedekiah to revolt against Babylon. And there's a, a, a verse in Ezekiel that kind of suggests that. And then in his ninth year, so he's in it for 11 years, right? So in his ninth year, 588, on the throne, Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And as a, as a result, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. Zedekiah was confident of Egypt's help, which never materialized. He kept thinking that Egypt was going to help. The advance of an Egypt or Egyptian army in the summer of 588 did force the Babylonians to lift the siege of Jerusalem temporarily. Okay, and this is because they had to stop and go fight the Egyptians, okay? This is, but it was temporary. Egypt goes away. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes right back to the wall and is sieging the wall. We come now to chapter 25. So quickly look with me at verse 25. Verse 1. Now when the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall around it. So this is interesting. So here they come. Now again, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, the walls of Jerusalem in, in some places are very, very high. And so what a siege wall is, is kind of like a rampart or a ramp to build it up so that they can get over the wall. And of course, in the meantime, you'll have them shooting arrows and throwing things and even boiling, uh, pouring boiling tar on them. And, and so this has to be done and this takes time. By the way, uh, maybe next week we'll take a look at it, but you all know about Masada and Masada was built on this incredibly high plateau. You talk about a fortress, protection, and that's exactly how the Romans got to them. They built an incredible ramp, an incredible rampart that goes up. In fact, it's there to this day. So you're, you're up in Masada, and you can look over if you're not scared of heights, but when you look over, you can see this mound. It's a dirt mound with stones and rocks, and it's a ramp. And that's what a, a siege ramp is. It could be built of wood, or it could be built of stones and dirt. Sometimes uh, they have uh, a covering over them so that you're not exposed. But anyway, this is what they do. And in fact, uh, here's... Here is a, a carving on a piece of stone, and, and you can see the, a wall there, and you can see this little ramp, and then this dolly, if you will, uh, going up the ramp. We'll zoom in a little bit. By the way, if you'll notice, there's a guy falling to the right. He has no head, and then there's a guy over here already fallen, and, uh, and it's war. That's what war is about. 
And, uh, and so you, this, is, this is historical. Uh, here is another um, drawing from an artist's imagination. So this is, this is quite uh, a ramp here that they have. But it does show you that, that these things can be built, and it can be built in such a way that there is protection while they're doing it. Um, but you can also see the advantage of the wall. You can see the advantage of a city that is built on a hill that Jesus talked about. That was, that's their protection. When you go to Israel, that's what it is. It's kind of rolling hills, just like Wyoming. And on the top of these, well, here we call them buttes. But on the top of the hills, that would be where they would build a fortress. And first of all, they had to go uphill to get to the walls. And then they had to scale the walls even further. But the ramps, this is how they counteracted that. All right, so... We see here that how did Nebuchadnezzar respond to Zedekiah? Not favorably. And he camped around him and built this siege wall uh, with these ramps. And one writes, Nebuchadnezzar sent his whole army to lay siege against the city of Jerusalem. The siege began in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign. 588 BC. The siege wall was comprised of either wood towers higher than the walls of the city or a dirt rampart encircling the city. So we see that. And by the way, Jeremiah talks about these ramps. Um, in fact, go ahead, just turn there quickly. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 24. It's right in the midst of all of this. So Kings calls it a siege wall, but here in Jeremiah, it's actually called siege ramps. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and what you have spoken has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Well, it was under siege until the 11th year of Zedekiah. And then that's when the wall was breached. That's when the city was taken, burned, destroyed. And whatever survivors there were, if they were worth taking, were taken to Babylon. That's where we are. But just two quotes. One says, Jerusalem withstood the siege until the 11th year of Zedekiah, July 586 B.C. Hezekiah's tunnel, remember that? Guaranteed the city an, in, or an uninterrupted supply of fresh water. Remember, we talked about that. And an Egyptian foray into Judah gave the city temporary reprieve from the siege. But how long can they survive? Well, two years. And then we're going to read that famine has start, started to take place. They're done. They're done. Another one writes, In Jeremiah 21, during the siege of Jerusalem, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah to intercede to the Lord so that perhaps the Lord would deliver Judah. Jeremiah returns God's answer he has irrevocably, irrevocably handed Judah over to judgment, first by plague, and those who escape that will fall to the Babylonians. The only hope, the only hope that any of the people have is to surrender to the Babylonians. And in Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 9, God says, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. They could go out in the midst of the battle and surrender and survive. And by the way, God was advising them to do it because God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to conquer all the nations for their evil against Israel and even Israel's evil. 
but don't worry, the Babylonians will get theirs. Well, a couple of things as we take a look at this, uh, and we are very serious now. The one thing we take away is, and I'll say it again, the sovereignty of God. I say that a lot because I see the sovereignty of God in Scripture a lot. One time I remember in the middle of preaching, I said, well, I apologize. I'm going to be talking about the sovereignty of God. Again, somebody came up to me and said, don't, don't apologize for the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God in this instance is the aspect that it is impossible to thwart God. Even if you defeat the Chaldeans and only have a few wounded soldiers, they're going to defeat you. We see a number of great verses that talk about this, but uh, it's impossible to thwart God in his will. Since God is all-powerful, his sovereign plans cannot be frustrated. How often are we frustrated with our plan? How often were we frustrated just these last couple days with the cold weather and the stuff that breaks down? Well, that doesn't happen to God. It can't be reversed, and it can't be overturned. That is the sovereignty of God. And here, we're applying it to the punishment to Judah, as well as the other evil nations. But to Judah comes the promise of future restoration, even in the midst of this anger. What a great God we serve. Isaiah 14, 27 it says, for the Lord God of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? Who? Not Satan. By the way, you hear of this yin and yang. Yin and yang is an equal force of good and evil in the world. That's ridiculous. God is sovereign. And Satan is a created being who will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's no yin and yang. Now, if we see, perhaps... Evil seem like it's prospering is because God is allowing it because it will accomplish his purposes. And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Who can arm wrestle God? Job chapter 42 verse 2 says, I know that you could do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Absolutely not. And we're seeing it here. Now, for the believer, we think of it as Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. The sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is just as much a factor in your life now as we're seeing it here in this passage. But it's for those who love God, who those who are called according to his purpose. Not to say that we don't ever become discipline with heavenly discipline not to say that at all but God is working even that for good Christ-like character well the second point that I want to make is I just want to talk about false prophets let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 28 and there's a number of things that we can derive some principles So, chapter 28, and we'll work our way through it. All right, so the first thing, we've already talked about this. We've already read some of this, but we'll read it again. The principle is false prophets contradict God's message. That's how you know a false prophet. Well, wait a second. How do I know if it contradicts God's message? That's the key. The key is knowing God's word. So you can't really determine if he's a false prophet or not unless you know the word. And therein lies the secret to discernment. And it's sad to say in Christianity today, there is a lack of discernment because there is a lack of the knowledge of the word. So here, chapter 28, verses 1 through 4. Um, Hananiah, I'll go down to verse 2. Thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Oh, no, he has not. Oh, no, he has not. But here's a contradiction, teaching something opposite of what God says in his word. The second principle is 
Prophets speak what people want to hear. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't preach or teach encouraging things. In fact, I like to do that. But you also have to preach it as in the text. And sometimes it is hard to listen to. And so we look at verses 5 and 6 here in chapter 28. And it says, Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. He's not afraid. He wasn't a crybaby. He was a man who had a heart like the Lord Jesus Christ who wept over Israel. And this is what he said. And there's some wisdom in this. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, to what Hananiah said. Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Uh, there's two ways to look at this. One thing is, is that there's nothing wrong with that. If that were the case, you know, that'd be like saying, that would be great if God would save everybody. But he's not going to. But that would be great. There's nothing wrong with desiring that, but also knowing that that's not going to happen. And he's saying, look, if they all would re return within two years, this is going to be great. This would be wonderful. And so it's the idea that it's wonderful. But also, too, he knows that they are going to be brought out of captivity, but 70 years, not two years. And we will see the treasures of the Lord's house that was in Babylon's storage, that, they, that will be brought back. But he's not done, okay? Just in case anybody's confused, he's not done. Verse 7, yet hear now this word, which I am about to speak in your hearing and the hearing of all the people. Verse 8, the prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. God does deal with sin. He's done it with other nations. And now Israel, Judah, is on the chopping block as well. So false prophets speak what people want to hear. And false prophets are not in agreement with other prophets. And again, you could look at this as, okay, I know the word of God because the apostles and the prophets wrote it. I know it's God's inspired, infallible word. But if you have a false prophet who's not in agreement with something in Scripture, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. But what we get to do is to say, wait a second, that's not what the Scripture says. What you're saying is contrary. That's what we get to do at a discernment. By the way, uh, the idea of these prophets speaking something that people want to hear. Does it not say that in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Well, I want to read verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. But verse 3 is the one I'm trying to get to. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It's the same principle. When Paul wrote that, he might have had his devotions in Jeremiah that morning. Next, we see that False prophets presume to speak for the Lord. That's the thing. You know, they're not even wishy-washy about it. Well, I don't know if this is from the Lord or, or if I just have indigestion, but here goes. No, it's they say this is from the Lord. And, and, and this is the appeal to the people of God who don't have discernment. The Lord said it. The Lord said it. They presume to speak for the Lord. The next principle is that false prophets' words do not come true. They're never going to come true. They're never going to come true. That's what makes them a false prophet. And we know in Deuteronomy, it says that's how you tell whether a prophet is a true prophet or not, if his words come to fruition. And then 
We could say false prophets tell lies. That's it. You could classify them as liars. Who are those who tell lies? Liars. In verse 15, Jeremiah says, Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah. I'm, I'm sure it was with that inflection. The Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. False prophets at the end of the day are, are liars. They don't tell the truth. And then finally, false prophets will be punished. As we read the last several verses, Jeremiah said, you won't have to wait two years to find out who's the true prophet. Hananiah, I'm prophesying that you're going. You're going down. You're going to die. And he did. And so the people knew. And yet the people did not turn to follow the true prophet. Anyway, so this is what we have. We come back, we'll be talking about chapter 25, and it is, I guess, the beginning of the end, and this is what we'll see. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, there are so many principles here, Lord, and first of all, thank you that you are a God of your word. Lord, thank you that you are a God who warns. Lord, the truth of the matter is, is the gospel goes out. And virtually has gone out to everyone in the world. Missionaries are bringing the gospel to tribes way back in undisclosed places. There's a warning in the gospel. A warning that if we don't receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we will spend eternity not only away from your presence, but we will be under the, the punishment as well in hell. Father, we, we thank you that you tell the truth and that you do give warnings. And Father, I pray that many, many, many who we've been praying for, Lord, will have ears to hear and hear the warning and come to Christ. Pray, Father, that many will come and receive Christ in the gospel. But Father, we also thank you for the promises that you have. You are a sovereign God. And Lord, I would say my prayer tonight is if, if there's one attribute, Lord, that we we need to get, it would be the sovereignty of God. And, and Father, would, would you cause it, would you sovereignly cause it to sovereignly stay with us 24-7? Then we would have wisdom. Then we would have self-control. Then we would do your will and please you. Father, thank you for these things that we've learned. Bring us back next week, Father, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Any thoughts or comments on any of that? Yes. <laughs>